Welcome to the Heavenly Banquet, where the hungry are filled with good things. My name is Chad. And I'm Charlotte. Charlotte, tell me what you know. Oh, you know, as time goes on, I'm realizing that there's so much more that I don't know than I know. I know, I'm with you. Well, that's right on today's topic. <laughs> uh, recently, I, I wrote a blog post on Substack. Ah. Uh, the apophatic way, apophatic way. I thought we might talk about that some today. Okay. But before I do that, do you want to say something? <laughs> oh, sure. <clears throat> hey, Chad, before you get too far into that, this is a great opportunity <laughs> to plug our Substack. So if you're yeah. a regular listener of this podcast, thank you so much. Yes. But let me also tell you that we have some extra materials um, on our Substack, and you'll get some more information on each one of these episodes and also some um, blog posts, theological musings, sermon manuscripts, prayers, uh, some other things to fill you and a little community of other listeners to interact with. So yes. if you go to heavenlybanquet.com, then you'll you'll end up at the Substack. We'd love to have you there. But Chad, the apophatic way, the via negativa. Yeah, the, the negative way. So God is greater than our best thoughts about God, right? We can start there. Yes. Think about when Jesus says that no one knows the Father except the Son, and of course the Son is the revelation of God to us. So the idea is God is revealed in the way, but ultimately the essence of God is inscrutable, uh, transcends our best concepts of God. Sure. Okay. Nonetheless, we try to understand God. Um, so there's traditionally, there's been two common ways to approach how we might understand God. One way is the positive way. Um, the cataphatic way. And the idea is you take whatever good, great making properties there might be, uh, knowledge, love, generosity, what have you, and you attribute those to God in the superlative degree. So if having knowledge is good, then God is all-knowing. All mm. um, if uh, having power is good, then God is all-powerful, and so on. And so the idea is not only can we know what God is like by taking these good attributes to the superlative degree, not only is God like those attributes, but we can also know that God is like those attributes. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So that's a very common way we talk about God being omniscient, meaning God is all-knowing, or God being... Um, omnipotent, meaning God is all-powerful, or God being omni-benevolent, and so on and so forth. However, when we do that, we place limits on the divine essence, which is, again, transcendent and inscrutable. So what ends up happening is if, if we take the positive way, we... Um, we assert these attributes are divine, and yet in doing that, we end up potentially generating false statements. I'll give you an example. Okay. 
uh, we say that God is ubiquitous, uh, which means that God is everywhere because God is not limited by time or space. Mm-hmm. However, the divine essence transcends creation. I mean, think about it. What we understand about everywhere is a concept that we form within our experience within time and space. Right. So although it's true to say that God is ubiquitous because God is everywhere, um, God transcends that. So God is also not ubiquitous. And so what the apophatic way does, instead of, taking the positive route, the, the apophatic way is what we call the negative way. Instead of saying what God is, we try to determine what God is not. And in doing so, by removing the things that God is not, we come to a place where we can understand what God is like. That's kind of the idea. Um, so for instance, you and I talk, have talked about corruptibility that, that in this world, finite creatures are physically corruptible. Right. Um, we would negate that in relation to God. God is not corruptible. Right. Um, we are finite beings. Uh, so taking the negative way, we would negate that and say that God is not finite, i.e. God is infinite. Right. And presumably you can continue doing that. But the negative way not only negates what God is not, but it also negates our conceptions of what God is. Again, going back to uh, ubiquity, although it's true to say that God is ubiquitous, God is everywhere. um, It's also true to say that God is not ubiquitous because um, God transcends whatever everywhere our conception of everywhere might be. Um, and so ultimately, you keep negating until, you know, the only thing left is God. But of course, what happens when you do that, <laughs> there's nothing left with which to compare God. Right. I mean, Asuna in the post, because it was one of the uh, monthly Asuna posts, he says, if you want to reach contemplation, you basically have to rid yourself of everything that God is not. And of course, the irony is when you get to that point you don't have a conception of the divine and for at least for the uh, christian mystics that sets you up in just the right place to enter into contemplative prayer because one of the main themes we find in contemplative prayer is that we can't comprehend god with our intellects but we can know god um, with our hearts uh, with our affective our desires and so on. Hmm. So that's kind of the framework of the post of the blog. But I wanted to talk about how the the negative way can help us think about our own beliefs and the beliefs of others. That's kind of what I really wanted to get into today. Okay. Uh, but before I do that, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> it seems like admitting to them would be a crime right now. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, I guess, yeah, I have two thoughts. One being, you know, around the cataphatic way, you know, and the limits on the kind of affirmations of um, the qualities of God. Mm-hmm. 
that I think the ubiquitous example is is great. Um, I think we, you know, might even turn to how limited some of the other ones are just because of our experience. I mean, even to say that God is omniscient or omnipotent, mm-hmm. well, all that I can really conceive of with both of those things is, well, God is more smart than the smartest I know. I mean, there's yeah. no, there's still a limit to how I could possibly grasp or comprehend that, right? Or all powerful. What what could that really mean to just have no limits on something? There's, because we're finite creatures, because we live in this world, all of our experience is limited. So to try to understand something that isn't limited is unfathomable let's say Um, and then I guess I'm kind of wondering uh, and I I have a sense that I've read something like this in Eckhart but you're the the expert there but um, this idea that listening to you talk about Usuna just now of kind of emptying the mind of these concepts of God and negating everything that isn't God to end up to a place where you have no real kind of conception of God in the mind, how that can mirror then the self-emptying of Christ. Oh, nice. Um, I I think we see some of that in Eckhart where he compares the mystical experience to kenosis um, that it's in that self-emptying that one then can becomes more Christ-like and can then receive yeah. the divine. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Well, I like I, to hear I that. affirm that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> one other thing before we move on past the cataphatic. Sure. I mean, uh, Christians have recognized that we're limited. So the very best of our concepts are probably not that great in relation to God. And so uh, Thomas Aquinas famously argued that our concepts of God say that God is love is analogously true. Um, That somehow God is like that, but it's not, um, what's the word? Univocity. It's not a one for one correlation. So God is somewhat like our love, but of course, as you pointed out, there's limits. You know, our experience of love is, it kind of comes and goes. Sometimes we love folks, sometimes we don't, you know. Um, clearly, that's not going to be the case for God. But I guess even more than that, our very conception of love can't get there, whatever that means. But it's analogously true. I, I just think maybe that's helpful to say. It's not like, so in saying it's analogously true, you know, the conclusion is, OK, then we can know something about God, even if it's even if it's only an analogy. I don't know. if that But of course, the fact that they're analogies means they fall short. Right. Yeah. Right. There might be a temptation to to take our beliefs as if we can only have faith if we're certain of our beliefs. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and I think that creates a lot of problems, not only for our own experience, but how we view um, those who don't believe like 
we do. Right. I don't know if that's setting it up quite right. But <clears throat> what the apophatic way does is it, it, it helps us realize that how we think about God is um, provisional at best. I don't know. Is that the word I'm looking for? You know, here's a strange yeah. thing. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. I think I do. That I mean, anything that the thoughts that we have about God or our conception of God is always mm, provisional in the sense it's like a placeholder. It's going to be challenged uh, yeah. by our other thoughts or even our deeper thinking about that conception we're holding on to because it's just going to be imperfect. Right. And, there has to be some kind of comfort with that or, you know, a, a, an understanding, a humility there so that when that thought is challenged, even by our own mind, which is mm -hmm. really the most likely place it will happen, <laughs> um, that that doesn't break the whole system, that that's just part of what this faith is. Right. Yeah. I mean, the way I say it, rightly or wrongly, is I have a fairly uh, set system of beliefs when it comes to the Christian faith, for the most part. Right? Mm -hmm. And I believe they're true. But I also know that I could be wrong. I mean, the word I use is I... I I have faith and I have these beliefs, but I'm also a fallibilist, meaning I know that what I believe, even at its best, falls short of the reality. And I could be wrong. I don't I don't believe I'm wrong. And that's a hard thing. That's a hard tension to hold. Right. Um, what I believe about God and what's been revealed in Jesus Christ, I believe it's true to the best of my understanding at any rate. But I also know it's a belief. It's not, it's not certain knowledge that everyone everywhere recognizes. Right. So here's one way to think about knowledge in terms of the amount of people who would agree. Okay. Okay. So most people everywhere in the world, regardless of their culture, upbringing, language, what have you, as long as they understand the terms, are going to agree that two plus three equals five. Okay. So you're going to have wide, what, what you might call widespread intersubjective agreement. Most people, as long as they understand the terms, are going to agree. So mathematics is one of those few areas that most everyone everywhere is going to agree on, as far as simple things like adding, subtracting, and so on. Yeah, well, let's say arithmetic. How about Okay, arithmetic. Okay. Uh, widespread agreement. Something similar with logic. Of course, this is not quite the same because logic is one of those areas that, um, of course, philosophers are going to differ. But, you know, if I say um, Socrates is a human, all humans are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. Something like that. Most folks are going to agree, at least with the implications of certain basic logical operations. All that to say that in the realms of uh, arithmetic and logic, you have widespread agreement. Most, you know, it's not dependent on um, 
culture, religion, language, so on and so forth. Below that, you have the scientific methods, particularly the hard science, physics, uh, chemistry, and so on. People from various cultures and uh, languages can agree on, you know, the boiling point of water, depending on, you know, we'll, we'll say everybody's using the metric system. They're, they can all do the experiment everywhere and come up with similar, if not the same, results. And so you, you also have widespread, not as wide as you might with arithmetic, but widespread agreement um, that's not contingent on culture, religion, language, and so on. You know, people from all over the world can work on one experiment. Where you start having a breakdown is in areas of, you know, philosophy, politics, morality, and religion. Instead of having widespread agreement, you have much less agreement. All that to say, when we're talking about religious claims, claims of belief, the fact that you don't have widespread agreement. You know, if everybody in the world believed that uh, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and so on, you know, that would function kind of like math or logic or science, but it doesn't. You have widespread disagreement over religious claims. So I think when we talk about our own beliefs, we, you know, it inherently has to come with some humility because there are going to be people who are genuine in their own faith but disagree with ours. And of course, I think for us as Christians, what's helpful to get us to that place is kind of this apophatic approach to how we understand God and recognizing our limits. Even, well, even with a cataphatic approach, right? As you were saying, uh, with the example you gave about, um, what was it, what was it again? Uh, knowledge or power. Yeah. Uh, clearly, it's limited. My best idea of what knowledge means, it's really not applicable to God. <laughs> no. Just think about how we learn stuff, primarily through our five senses or by uh, induction or deduction. But it's always a process. And of course, God isn't limited to an empirical experience. Presumably, God doesn't have to make inductions about the world. So however God does something, and I think traditionally the idea is God's knowledge isn't like a subject viewing an object, but God's knowledge is a creative even. So it's, it's just a whole different realm. I just think there's a tendency among some Christians to treat their own beliefs as if, um, I don't want to say as if they're obvious, but if, as if if you don't believe them, there's something wrong with you. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And that's a problem. I'll put it this way. I think one of the virtues that you don't see enough of around Christ, uh, with Christians is what I call doxastic humility. That is humility about their own beliefs. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll just talk about my own experience. When I first um, started considering the faith and you know, eventually got rebaptized. <laughs> <laughs> I held my beliefs in a very dogmatic fashion. Um, in fact, if my 30-year-old self could talk to me today and hear what I'm saying right now, he would think I was an idiot. Right. Because <laughs> I was so certain. And why was I so certain? Uh, 
because I hadn't learned enough to realize I hadn't, you know what it was? I hadn't realized this belief was wrong or that belief was wrong. I, that hadn't happened enough for me to realize, Oh, uh, I'm much more fallible in my beliefs than I realized. You were, you were also told like many of us that kind of, there was this one-to-one relationship between salvation and knowing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Say and more about that. I think there's some usefulness there i mean the hallmark of part of the augustinian tradition but this idea of if you love god you want to know more about god and knowing about god is getting closer to god and it's through our intellect that we connect with god because Mm -hmm. that's where we place the image of god within ourselves that's what differentiates us from other created things and there's a relationship between knowing the object of your salvation and being saved. Mm. There's so much of that is very, very useful, but it also means that ended up or ends up in some traditions being like, if you do not subscribe to dogma X, Y, and Z, you don't know God, you can't be saved. Right. And I mean, and then that, and it ends up with the problems too with, around people with different um, intellectual or emotional or social capabilities Mm -hmm. and whether or not they can grasp the divine. And I mean, even, you know, what there's, there's this piece in the who's Tommy about, you know, can this deaf, dumb and blind boy be saved, Mm. you know, because there isn't a way, how, how could he know? How could he know? You know? Mm. Um, And that ends up in some really detrimental ugly places but i but i i think that's some of the background music between you know holding on to ideas that aren't even serving you or serving others about god but like well if i don't have it what do i have yeah yeah i mean i part of it is this confusion that faith reduces to truth claims that i believe it's kind right of, exactly yeah yeah right instead of um kind of this combination of trust and commitment right and i guess it's easy to be like well i believe x y and z i'm good to go kind of like we were talking about in a recent uh podcast about the difference between um following christ and 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 worship uh where was i going with that (laughs) just shut up i forgot what i just said I don't know, but I mean, they're they're definitely. Oh gosh, I don't want to get us too far off of your apathetic and cataphatic ideas. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are depictions in the Bible of people having. Okay, I'll because it's this week's lectionary reading is the um, story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Mm-hmm. And it not only doesn't say anything about Lazarus' moral condition we don't know why he's poor we don't know why he's living on the streets we don't know why you know he's hurt whatever so there's no like judgment around him that doesn't matter it doesn't matter at all right and in this story but what ends up he's ends up in the bosom of abraham and he ends up in the bosom of abraham before any of the salvation cross and all that yes <laughs> all of the events that some of us some people place at the center of their 
soteriology of their salvation theories. Um, and like it, it's not about knowing, but it was some, there's something else there to be meditated on about, you know, having some kinship th- with Christ just through, through suffering or through hardship, or at any rate that God saw this person and pulled that person to paradise, you know, and we don't know why or how or what any kind of reason is beyond that. So, you know, the scope that, so I'm just pointing that, you know, to challenge our ideas of what it could mean to be saved, of what it does mean to be saved. And again, I don't know, maybe it's a little too still strong Calvinist streak within me, but there's a point in which a pursuit of knowledge of the divine is like a work in its own end, right? That if I know more and I hold on to more, then I'll get it rather than, I I mean, I like one of the things I like about the apophatic approach is just, it's an, it's marked by not just this humility, but this just openness Mm -hmm. um, that it's a receptive approach rather than. And I think some people would malign it then as being passive. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it has those kinds of marks, but it's, it's toward a specific purpose. It's an openness to the divine toward Mm -hmm. union. Um, and and I think that's when again that language then around self emptying um, and kenosis comes into play because that is that is our faith that is modeling the work and the life of Christ then yeah I mean I think for a long time I operated kind of under the assumption of what you're talking about that the more I would know not so much that I was concerned with my salvation but I could just know more and more and more about God and understand and, you know, get a clearer picture. Right. And that's going to make you more holy though, in some way, right? In some way. Yeah. But that has not been the case. No. The, the more I know, the more dang questions I have. <laughs> yeah. But I agree with you. Um, the apophatic way of allowing God to work in us without assuming that I can control the process with my, ideas or my thoughts about God is you see I say this in the in the post it can it can feel risky yeah um it's like letting go of the edge of the pool isn't it yeah. well I yeah. mean it's you know the the touchstones the things that we want to hold on to and you you're slowly letting go of them and wondering if you know the abyss is going to swallow you right that's right but they're always there but it, it, it feels risky, but it's also, uh, it's a huge step of faith because it's trusting God to look. If I'm going to give up, because our conceptions of God give us a sense of control. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm going to give this up, I'm trusting that God's, like you say, not going to let me get swallowed up in the abyss in a, in a bad way. <laughs> if right. it's in the divine abyss, that's probably ideal, but that's another I don't know. I guess it, I like the apophatic way because I think it encourages doxastic humility. And I think that's something that's sorely missing among too many Christians. Just to add one one thought would be, if this is unfamiliar to folks, so much of what we 
affirm and I think people might misunderstand as being part of the cataphatic way, but so much of what we affirm is actually in the negative. I mean, when we say we use language, God is, mm-hmm. but then it's God is infinite, right. right? God is incorporeal. God is uh, the unbegotten one, right? right. Um, so, and, and that that's the language then, you know, that ends up in our creeds. And whatnot. Um, that so the broadest part of the tradition, I think, really has affirmed it's not just in mysticism, the broadest part even of the yeah. academic tradition mm-hmm. has affirmed that what we really know about God is what God is not. Yeah, exactly. Which is terrifying to think about if you think about that too hard. Well, it is. <laughs> because again, knowledge gives us a sense of control. Right. Um I don't think God's too much worried about that, though, to be honest with you. No. No, you're exactly right. Um, A lot of folks kind of pin the apophatic way on um, Dionysius, the pseudo-Dionysius, the Europa guy. Um, But actually, it goes back further than that. The Cappadocians were huge about the apophatic way. In the Greek, when you negate, uh, you negate with uh, alpha. And so you, when you read them, they have all these um, all these words, like you say, um, corruptibility, with the A in front. Kind of like you negate theism by putting an A in front, atheism. Right, right. When you read them in the Greek, they've got all these words about God that are just negations of certain properties. So you're right. Um, the apophatic really does uh, run throughout the whole tradition. Because, again, it's this idea that, look, God transcends this creation. But it's much, maybe it's it's much more comfortable to say, look, I know God is X, Y, and Z. I'm good with that. And so I'm just going to go forward with that. And that's fine. Uh, but. <laughs> it's fine, but. Well, I mean, <clears throat> it just all depends on how that plays out in the way I've, I, uh, other people and even in the way I present the gospel right I just don't think we can get away with uh, the things we believe to be true are our beliefs and regardless of whatever subjective sense of certainty we might have about them they're not obvious to other people we just thinking about Christ we believe some wonderful fantastic things (laughs) Uh, the resurrection being a primary one. Right. When you start to talk to people who don't, didn't grow up in the church, didn't have any exposure to that, how we present that makes a difference. And presenting it dogmatically is not going to be helpful. Does that make sense? Yeah.